We have come to Acts chapter 21, which marks the beginning of the end for the book of Acts. The opening 12 chapters report the gospel witness in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 13 begins the account of the gospel witness going to the ends of the earth. So chapters 13 to 20 narrate Paul's three missionary journeys in which he takes the gospel further and further out into the world. Chapter 21 begins his journey back to Jerusalem. The bumpy road into the world will become an even bumpier road back to and through Jerusalem. But God's sovereignty is on full display, ordaining the means as well as the ends to accomplish God's redemptive purposes. That we might see any of this before we read, let's pray. Our God of revelation, we rejoice again in the opportunity to have your word read, to have it expounded and applied, that we might know thus saith the Lord, and to have you direct our ways in particular uh, ways according to the way of Christ. Make him the focus that our lives might focus on what he has accomplished in us and will accomplish through us. To that end, we pray for your spirit to bear witness to this reading and preaching of your word, praying for the preacher who is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. So it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Our two section from Acts 21 has two distinct parts. There are warnings on the way to Jerusalem and then warnings while at Jerusalem. So we're going to read those in two separate parts and consider them one at a time. Listen first to God's word, Acts chapter 21, the first 16 verses. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. After this, we got ready 
went up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. There are three warnings in this opening section of chapter 21. The first warning is in the fact that Paul's travels to Jerusalem are anything but smooth sailing. Paul is trying to get to Jerusalem by Passover, according to Acts 20, verse 16, 50 days after the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which he did in Philippi, that we read about in Acts 20, verse 6. And every step of the way has taken longer than planned. And Paul also can't seem to find a ship that will take him nonstop, but only cargo ships traveling short distances at a time and taking more time. He finally starts to make progress, as we read in the opening three verses, but upon landing in Tyre, the ship needs to stay and dock for a week in order to unload, and there are no other ships that are leaving. He only has two weeks left in order to make it to Jerusalem in time, which he can reasonably do as long as he doesn't run into any other problems. Here's hoping. When God closes certain doors or frustrates certain plans, we often understand that to mean God has other plans for us. We understand long delays as God redirecting us. As Presbyterians, we simply call long delays the committee process, right? But, but seriously, we often give up on plan A when it faces an obstacle. And often this is God's providential redirect, but not always. Jen and I have told you about our uh, early attempts to be going to a seminary in Virginia soon after we were married and all kinds of obstacles that kept that from happening. And then we heard about Reform Seminary in Orlando and in a very short time, all the doors opened and very smooth sailing got us there well. Paul also continually has to leave people who would much rather have him stay. And there's all kinds of potential fruits to be gained from him staying. He leaves Corinth when the ministry is flurrying and they're at a critical juncture. And then he has to leave Athens and Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi, all while the ministries there are flourishing. He then has to leave Troas and the Ephesian elders. Our opening verse says, after we had torn ourselves away from those Ephesian elders. So the positive providence says that there's no reason to go to Jerusalem when things are going so well with the ministry that you're already doing and that people want you to stay here. Negative providence says there's no reason to go to Jerusalem since every step of the way seems to be fraught with problems. But wisdom must always be applied to specific situations to discern if we understand providence correctly. For sometimes we are called to go even when things are going well and called to do even when things are difficult. So warning number two comes then in verse four. Finding the disciples there in Tyre, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. We understand from this that the Holy Spirit was giving the disciples in Tyre a prophetic understanding that there would be trials for Paul in Jerusalem. You know, sometimes I think it would be great if God would reveal specifically the things that are going to happen in my life, to give me specific advance notice of his will. But then I think about that and realize it's probably good that I'm on a need-to-know basis and that I don't need to know. 
if I knew ahead of time that I was going to slip and fall, or that I was going to get attacked or get sick, or that I was going to blow it with some relationship or fail somebody miserably in some way or succumb to some temptation, if I knew ahead of time an unavoidable trial was coming, it would likely paralyze me. It is difficult to trust in God's providence, his holy, wise, powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. But trusting in God's providence is far easier than knowing what will happen. Verse 4 doesn't give us details, but it is clear that the Holy Spirit has given some warning about what will take place in Jerusalem. But back in Acts chapter 20, verse 22, we read Paul saying, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. So is the Spirit giving conflicting messages to Paul, compelling him to go to Jerusalem, while the disciples in Tyre are saying, don't go, it's going to be bad. No, those are not conflicting. In fact, they're complementary messages. Paul knows that there are hardships coming. So this is actually confirmation that what the Spirit has told Paul is true. Those who love Paul simply don't want him to go and face these hardships. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of suffering. Because Christianity has flourished so much in our neck of the woods, it is easy for us to lose sight of this. This current generation is seeing the shift from a supermajority of Americans who profess to be Christians and go to church on Sunday to an increasing number who claim a belief different than biblical Christianity, and particularly those who have no set belief at all. And so this is not a time to shout at the wind and talk about the problems with the world and people today or God's judgment on the United States. This is a time to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, unashamedly, but also not arrogantly, with a willingness to suffer, to give our time, energy, money, to build the kingdom of Christ. And to remember, it doesn't happen automatically. Paul knew this, and good for us to remember this. Paul must tear himself away from more people who love him. The disciples and their wives and children all accompanied us out of the city. They joined together in prayer and have to say goodbye to Paul, knowing that they will likely never see him again. Warning number three, then, comes in Caesarea, while Paul is staying with Philip, who is one of the original seven deacons of Acts chapter 6, and we read about his evangelism in chapter 8. Philip has four daughters who prophesied. Now, the nature of their prophecies are not recorded, but it is reasonable that they evangelized the Gentile areas in which they lived, along with their father, and that they concurred with what the Spirit had already revealed regarding Paul. Verse 11 tells us about the particular prophecy of Agabus. Now, back in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, we're told about Agabus, who at that time was in the sending church of Antioch 15 years earlier, and stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. It is that famine which is the impetus for Paul taking up the collection that he's done from the Gentile churches and is now bringing that to Jerusalem. Nevertheless, Agabus took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. 
Earlier in the service, we read in Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah does something similar, taking a linen belt to illustrate a particular message. The function of Old Testament prophets was not so much to predict the future, but to point to the coming Messiah. Jeremiah 13 speaks of a belt that is ruined and useless, as God's people had become ruined and useless because of their refusal to listen, stubborn hearts, and serving idols. And yet also, God is bound to his people like a belt is bound around a man's waist. So what did God do? By his covenant of grace, he sent the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, to be bound, to become ruined, to take upon himself the sin of God's elect people and to be nailed to the cross so that our redemption could be accomplished. The Apostle Paul sees in his own future suffering an echo of the suffering of Christ. And so in verse 14, Paul and those with him say what the Lord taught us to pray, thy will be done. When we legitimately suffer for the sake of the gospel, we echo the suffering of Christ. Certainly our sufferings don't accomplish salvation. Our salvation has been fully accomplished already by Christ. But we are sometimes called to suffer as we minister the gospel in word and deed. Thy will be done. The people of Caesarea urged Paul not to go. In fact, Luke himself chimes in. If you notice the first person plural pronouns in verses 12, 13, and 14, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go. He would not be dissuaded, so we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. But within 65 miles now of Jerusalem, Paul could not be persuaded to change his mind or his destination. And so to Jerusalem we go. Let's go back Starting at verse 17, listen again to God's word. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, and his reception could not have been started off any better. Paul has returned to give a mission report as he did after his first and second missionary journeys, and he was received warmly then as well. And on this occasion, Paul and his companions certainly delivered the financial offering that had been taken up to the churches, which Paul had planted. They would have been overwhelmed by such offering. 
And Paul shared a report about what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And Paul's traveling companions who themselves were Gentiles could give personal testimony of what God had done in their lives and in the lives of the churches that they represent. James, who is the brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church, along with the elders of the Jerusalem church, praise God for this good report. But then the drama begins. The warm reception moves to the cold reality. On the one hand, thousands of Jews have come to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the risen Savior and Lord. But on the other hand, all of them are zealous for the law. Now, if that meant that they were zealous for the moral law and desired to honor Christ by their obedience to the Ten Commandments, that would be fine. However, they are zealous for the ceremonial laws as well, particularly those that identify them as Jews of the nation of Israel. Now, just this morning, I read this quote from Puritan pastor Thomas Adams, who is called the Shakespeare of the Puritans. Adams said, some have a true zeal for a false religion, and others have a false zeal of a true religion. So there's a zeal here. Perhaps, perhaps they've already been convinced that they no longer need to bring animal sacrifices to the temple to atone for sin because Christ has fully atoned for our sin. They may even have rejoiced in this fact that they no longer have to incur the expenses of animal sacrifice. However, circumcision, the mark of identity that you belong to Israel, make Israel great again, their national pride makes them oppose foreigners. There was little missionary zeal for the Jerusalem church. They certainly wanted to share the good news with fellow Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah, but struggled to share the good news with Gentiles and allow Gentiles to trust in the Messiah without first becoming Jewish. Our identity is in Christ first. Our national identity must be secondary to our identity as Christians. It was in chapter 15 that we read about the Council of Jerusalem, the first general assembly, if you will, where they declared that Gentiles did not need to become circumcised. But they did not tell the Jews to stop circumcising. The Jerusalem Council rightly determined that Jesus Christ was the Savior of all nations. You cannot change your ethnicity, and you don't need to. And you don't need to become a citizen of Israel or a citizen of the United States in order to become a Christian. Positively stated, you can be Chinese and be a Christian. You can be Ugandan and be a Christian. You can be Honduran and be a Christian. Whatever nationality you are, you can live by many of the cultural norms of that nation and still be a Christian. The only cultural norms that must be changed are those that are immoral. Americans need to repent of self-centered individualism and the sexual immorality our culture continually seeks to normalize, greed, and ethnocentrism. Americans should truly understand the difficulty the Jews of Israel had because in so many ways we are just like them. We tend to think everyone should become like Americans. Certainly there are many good things we do in this country that can help other cultures flourish, but this country too long expected that to be a good Christian, you must be white, wealthy, and a Republican. Don't hear this as American bashing, 
but our missionary zeal is related to our zeal for taking the gospel to the lost, especially to those who are the least like you. With all that then comes the warning given in verse 21. The Jewish believers who are zealous for the Jewish laws have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. That is not what Paul had actually taught. This is a false accusation. Paul teaches the Gentiles that they do not need to follow Jewish customs, but he does not teach the Jewish believers not to follow Jewish customs. You can see how it can happen. Actually criticizing anybody about anything today gets you falsely accused of hate-mongering, being judgmental, intolerant, and bigoted. The Christian church is the most incredible social reality on the planet. We proclaim and live out a reality that people from every walk of life have unity in Christ. People of different ethnicities, different economic and social standings, different vocations, different preferences, habits, and hobbies. We all dwell together in the unity of the Holy Spirit. And the only way this works is by the working of the Holy Spirit applying the redemption accomplished by Christ. That's the church of Christ. Now, there is advice that the elders give based on this warning, which begins in verse 23. Basically, the idea is that Paul should take four men who have taken a Nazarite vow and to go with them and to pay the expenses involved in fulfilling the vow and then join with them in the ceremonial purification rituals. And in this way, the Jews can see that Paul still honors the Jewish customs and laws. And in many ways, this seems like prudent advice. It's a bit complicated, but because it walks on the edge of what is prudent and what is actually doctrinally wrong. Paul has rightly taught the Gentiles that it would be sinful for them to take on certain Jewish ceremonial laws and customs, and also that it is sinful for Jewish Christians to observe certain laws if it is for the purpose of meriting salvation. There are some ceremonies and customs and celebrations that are not sinful for anyone, while others are sinful for everyone. Tomorrow is Labor Day. Observed on the first Monday in September, Labor Day pays tribute to the contributions and achievements of American workers. It was created by the labor movements in the late 19th century and became a federal holiday in 1894. There is nothing sinful about taking tomorrow off, unless you work at a hospital or some other non-governmental job and your boss has told you to work. There is nothing sinful about appreciating many of the achievements of labor unions, which have advocated for safe work environments and fair pay. However, Labor Day began in part because of a riot, frustration that had grown between workers and owners of the Pullman Company in Chicago. No relation to Pullman Standard at Butler. And in the riot, 30 people were killed, $80 million in damages. Creating a riot, killing people, causing damages is sinful. But they have become common expressions of people trying to get their voices heard. And we're going to come into that season of the year when Christians must consider their participation in American holidays. Some of the holiday customs are quite benign, 
Some are outright sinful. Most people will argue about the benign things in order to avoid repenting of the sinful ones. Christ calls us, though, to do more than simply follow customs or simply to ask the question, what's okay to do? Christ calls us to minister the gospel into every aspect of life and existence, to redeem the time, to make holidays holy days. Rather than asking what is not sinful to do on Labor Day, you might ask, how might I apply the gospel of Jesus Christ on Labor Day? How might the gospel make a difference in people's vocational labors? You could ask, how might I apply the gospel to Halloween, Thanksgiving, and Christmas, and further Christ's kingdoms, particularly around those holidays? In coming to earth as God incarnate, Jesus had been warned. The Son of God knew what he was getting into, and he came anyway. And so we are compelled to go and to incarnate Christ by ministering the gospel in word and in deed to a world that is naturally hostile to the gospel. You've been warned. And yet many will respond to the ministry of the gospel and be saved. Doing something for someone who doesn't deserve it because that's grace has an element of suffering to it. You've been warned. And yet evil is overcome by good. Believing the Bible, proclaiming it, and living it out will bring criticism. You've been warned. And yet unbelief and unhealthy systems will be conquered by proclaiming and living out God's word. Getting out of your comfort zone to minister Christ to another will be uncomfortable. You've been warned. And yet a peace that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord will change everything about who you are and what you do. You've been warned. And yet the truth has set us free. Amen.